It's something for nothing. The Rush Fancast, Steve and Jerry with you. And Jer, I am very happy today for two reasons. Um, did you get your stimulus check? Well, three reasons. I got my stimulus <laughs> check. I got my first COVID shot. Four reasons, really. Oh, nice. The third reason is we have a great guest today who we're going to introduce shortly. Yes. And the fourth reason is we hit 150,000 downloads today. I know. It's crazy, right? How crazy is that? I know. I tried to capture it at 150,000 exactly, but I, I just couldn't couldn't capture it in the image. When we started this podcast, I would have been happy with 150 downloads. We were happy with 150 downloads. We were. Downloads. I was like, wow, we have 150 downloads. Can you believe that? <laughs> I think our first week we had about 200 downloads the whole entire week. And we were like, wow, people are really digging it. <laughs> well, I guess now people are really, really digging it. They sure are. You can find us on Twitter at RushFanCast. Instagram, we are at TheRushCast. Email Jerry, TheRushCast at gmail.com. The bass intro and outro is Lex. As usual, he's brilliant. And I hear you have a brilliant email for us, Jer. Don't sell it that hard yet. I haven't read it. <laughs> I mean, I haven't read it out loud. I've read it. I don't think I've sent you this one. So it's, again, something new to you. Well, this will be good. It's from Scott from Tennessee. Hey, Scott. He says, I really enjoyed the interview with Miller. He was a great guest with interesting and entertaining stories. The kind of person you could listen to all day, which is true because I could listen to him all day. Oh, totally. Just a quick story about my Rush concert experience as it relates to Miller's. I'm just a few years older than the two of you and spent my high school years in central New Jersey, which is where we grew up. Yeah. I would travel to both New York City and Philadelphia for concerts. Well, the second concert I went to as a fully functional teenager was Rush on the Grace Under Pressure Tour at Madison Square Garden. I was almost at the back of the arena, about five rows from the top. After the show, I was pretty disappointed. Despite them being my favorite band, I wasn't sure if I'd ever go see them again. They seemed so mechanical, so lifeless, like they were just going through the motions. Fortunately, I didn't listen to myself and went back for more. And I've seen them about 20 times in total. I never got that same feeling again and wondered if maybe they were having an off night or if there were some other problems. Anyway, I love the podcast and you can add me to your list of people who will buy you lunch if you're ever in the Nashville area. Oh, Nashville. Cool. I thought he was going to say Central Jersey. I don't want to eat lunch in Central <laughs> Jersey. <laughs> but Nashville, Nashville, I will eat lunch in. Yeah, Nashville's great. So, Jer, we've got a great guest, as I mentioned today on the podcast, heavy metal and rock historian, host of Trunk Nation on Sirius XM, host of Eddie Trunk Rocks on Q1043 in New York City, and syndicated across the country, probably Nashville too. <laughs> host of that metal show, author of Eddie Trunk's Essential Hard Rock and Heavy Metal, and the host of the Eddie Trunk Podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Eddie Trunk, welcome to the Rush Fancast. Steve, thank you for having me. Jerry, thank you for having me. Good to, Jerry, good to meet you. And Steve, good to connect with you again after many, many years. Uh, we go way back, so it's always good to connect with old friends. Yeah, yeah. We worked together at WDHA, what was it, 25 years ago, something like that? I started there 38 years ago, which is crazy. And wow. I last worked there, I guess it was probably 94. So it's, yeah, long time ago. So we like to start out by asking our guests, Eddie, their Rush origin story. When did you first hear Rush and how did you become a fan? Well, that's an interesting thing tying in with what we just talked about, because the radio station that you and I both worked at and the first radio station that I worked at. WDHA in, in New Jersey, which is still on the air and still doing great stuff. I was a listener of that radio station as a kid before I started working there right out of high school. And it was the station I grew up listening to, not the New York City Signals, but literally this backyard radio station for me. And they used to do something that was, uh, I believe it was just on Friday nights or Monday nights, one of the nights of the week where they would play an entire album start to finish. These are the days of truly album oriented rock. And each week they'd spotlight an album start to finish. And I, uh, I used to listen to those spotlight albums and I would always pop the cassette in and record them when they played them because if it was something that I liked. I would have it, and then I could, if I really liked it, I would then go buy the actual album at the record store. 
And one time they dis- the, the album of the week was a record called Permanent Waves by Rush. And I grew up uh, before that a couple years earlier, discovering rock music a few years earlier as a crazy Kiss fan. Kiss was my gateway band. So I was really predominantly into Kiss and Aerosmith and stuff like that as a very young kid. And then uh, the first time I heard Rush was when DHA played this full album or album side. I don't remember what it was, but it was definitely Permanent Waves. And I was like blown away. And I said, man, none of the bands I'm currently listening to play like this or sound like this. So I was I had that cassette, I had recorded it and I lived with it for a while. I listened to it a few more times. And then I went and physically bought a copy of the record, which was the new record at the time. So this would have been 1980. And from there I began the rush journey. And and interestingly, much like kiss who had an album called the originals, which featured a repackaging of their first three studio records. I quickly discovered that rush also had a packaging of their first three studio records. And then after that, I'm pretty sure I got All the World's a Stage, which to this day is still my favorite of their of their live albums. And how did you like that box set, considering those first three albums are so different from uh, what you had been just exposed to? I loved the first record and still do to this day. I love it in its simplicity and it's very, you know, more riff rock oriented zeppelin meets the who meets sabbath whatever i i just i still love the first record i mean uh there's there's great stuff on there so that really connected with me because it was way more in line with what i was listening to at the time which was very you know more basic riff oriented hard rock and then when he got into caress of steel and fly by night obviously things got a little bit more adventurous and obviously neil coming into the picture at that point and more epic songs and more proggy. So that took me a little bit more time to absorb and get into, but I eventually did. And I did like a lot of things on those records, but I've actually, I actually always like enjoyed a little bit more of the more basic rush than the super, super, you know, epic proggy 12 minute tracks. Although in time I've grown to like some of that stuff. Now, how long after you were exposed to Rush. Did you get to see them live? This was 1980. You were a teenager, right? Yeah, I didn't see them. In, in 80, I would have been 15. I saw them for the first time on the Moving Pictures tour. I didn't see them on Permanent Waves, but I was too young still at that point. I mean, I was, my first two concerts were Kiss in 77 and 79. And in both cases, an older person took me to them. And it was, it was much more challenging to got, try to get to a show myself. But by 81, Around the time of moving pictures, I mean, I was at that point junior, senior in high school, so I was a little bit more flexible. My parents were a little bit cooler about letting me go to shows, so it definitely would have been moving pictures, and I'm pretty sure it was probably at the Meadowlands Arena. And then from there, I'm assuming you've seen every tour since then, would you say? Actually, no, because here's where the story goes a little sideways. So, and, and I know, you know... <laughs> I just got, I always have to preface this because I know Rush <laughs> fans are, and how they are, and I appreciate how they are, and I consider myself a Rush fan, of course. I love the band. I love the guys personally. I know them. I've interviewed them many times. I have the distinction of being one of the guys that actually did a TV interview with Neil, which is just crazy still. So I have nothing but respect for the guys. However, that being said, and I openly admit this, I did check out on Rush for a while. And where I started to check out was around the time of signals going forward because Rush started to evolve into a band that was more synth oriented. There was a lot more keyboards coming into their sound. And as a young guy, I was much more of a heavy rock fan and Mm -hmm. they began to lose me a little bit. So while there are certainly things in that mid eighties period that I like and certainly things like distant early warning and you know a lot a lot of the material a lot of the hits and the big songs during that period i i I certainly like i also soured on them because i felt it was getting too far away from alex and guitar driven rock so i only kept a loose eye on them and like listened to stuff and liked some of the singles but some of the stuff i just you know there was reggae influence coming in there was a lot of keyboards coming in And I'm like, you know, 
I just felt the edge in the band that I was a hard rock guy. I felt a lot of that was going away. And it's really interesting. I mean, where I feel it really came back was with counterparts. I'll never forget here and stick it out. And when I heard the opening riff of stick it out, I was, I was like, Whoa, this is what I'm like. Okay. Now we're getting some meat and potatoes again. <laughs> and it's funny because I understand that a lot of rush fans love that period that I don't like so much. And I'll tell you a quick story on this. As most people know, I've been doing radio my whole life and I pride myself on being just honest. I'm not saying I'm right or wrong. I just give my opinions how I feel and I respect other opinions. So for a long time, I said this on the air when I would talk about that period of rush and how I felt about it and said what I just said. And so many times the fans, some, some of the super hardcore of the rush fans would really come down on me about it, give me <laughs> shit about it. Because, you know, every band has that segment of the fan base that you have to love everything they ever did, or you're a problem and you need to be canceled or something. It's crazy. But there are bands that have fan bases like that. And, and the other band I love, Kiss, is one of them. Mm. There's just a small segment of the fan base that's just blind. you got to be in on everything. So when I said that a couple times and there was blowback about it from certain segments of the fan base, you know, whatever, like everything, I rolled it off my back. I've heard it all. I went to the premiere of the Rush documentary. Was it uh, Beyond the Lighted Stage, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. I went to the premiere screening of that. Getty and Alex were there. We watched the premiere. After the premiere, there was a party to celebrate the movie. The movie was phenomenal. I know the guys who did it. It was great. And if you watch that movie, there's a point in that movie where Alex alludes to exactly what I have always been saying, that he got that, that his guitar got lost like he was not he was invisible for a period of time in the mix on Rush Records. It was like the greatest vindication of my life to hear <laughs> a member of the band agree with me and like, I'm not crazy. Even the guy in the band feels that way. And at the after party. I went running up to Alex and I go, Alex, I got to thank you. He's like, what are you talking about? I go, you just got me off the hook of like 10 years of torment from your fans. He's like, what are you talking about? And I told him, I said, you know, I always felt like you were lost in those records. And I wish there was, you know, some, you're more guitar presence. And I kind of checked out. He goes, oh, hell yeah, man. He goes, I almost checked out myself. I was so pissed <laughs> off about it. He's like, I was always fighting to get my guitar in the mix at that point. It was ridiculous. I'm like, thank God. So it was, um, it was a real revelation for me when that, that happened. And it felt like, uh, okay, I'm not crazy. It felt really good. You know, I, I think it has a lot to do, Eddie, with the entry point. Your entry point was Permanent Waves. And Jerry and I, our entry point was a couple years later when Power Windows came out. We saw Rush for the first time. So I think fans that jumped in in the 80s, appreciate the eighties a little bit more than fans who jumped in in the late seventies. And then later on, does that make any sense? Totally. I mean, very valid point. It depends upon your first impressions of the band. I mean, I think every rush fan can agree that early rush is a very different band than mid eighties rush. I mean, it's just sonically, it's, a, it's a different thing. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you love all your favorite bands to grow and evolve and, whatever band you're into with the twists and turns, it doesn't mean you have to love everything. I mean, every band that I love and I love rush, but, and you can name any band that I love to death. I can give you a period of their career that I wasn't as into it just, but, but that's a band's right to go through that evolution, but it doesn't mean as a fan, you have to buy into everything. It's okay to be objective. And that's just my personal taste, but, yeah, I've had this discussion with a lot of people who feel like Roll the Bones is their, their favorite record or mm -hmm. something, and that's yeah. fine. For me, it's not, but I, I get it. It's It just comes down to personal taste. Yeah, it has a lot to do. I think a lot of fans, though, kept with them going on tours, even though they didn't really get those kind of albums. They still went for the old stuff, and they hung around long enough to come back around, like you said, and, and get into Counterparts and get into Snakes and Arrows and things like that later on. Yeah, I mean, Rush is, I think, and they've been called this themselves, they're probably the biggest cult band of all time. The fans are incredibly loyal. And if you are a big Rush fan and you're a fan of the band, you know that. And you know that it's very much a fam. It's a family and community vibe, which 
I think emanates from the band members themselves, the way they are, the way they conduct themselves, their sense of humor, they're self-deprecating, they don't take it all too seriously. And I just think that there's more so than maybe any other band, you know, there's there's a lot of bands that talk about their fans being family, you know, and it's a big cliche and there's a lot that say that. But I, I think I think with Rush, it's one of the few bands where you can actually say it actually feels that way. It really does. It feels like even though they're obviously a huge band and everybody knows who they are, there's very few people who really know who they are, who really not very few. But, you know, there's just there's that that core base that's so passionate about it. And that's kind of like, you know, I think everybody knows you're sort of, you know, you're in that space, if you will, where, you know, the deal, you know, how good these guys are, you know, how special this is, even if there's periods that you like better than others. Well, let's explore that a little bit. Why? I mean, why is that? What is so special, not only about the band, but about their fans? Why are the fans so loyal? I think a lot of it comes from the guys. I mean, I think that it's just, these guys never appeared as and acted like rock stars. They never fleeced their fans. They've always done things in a very classy way, I think, with their fans in mind. I also think that there, let's be honest, there's a lot of people that don't like Rush, that don't get Rush, that some despise Rush. And I think when you have that very polarized world, that makes the side that loves the band be even more passionate about it and fight for it and believe in it. Again, there's a lot of similarities here to Kiss. And I know musically there really isn't between Kiss and Rush, but in a lot of other ways there is. Whether it be the same record label, whether it be, like I said, the repackaging of the first few records, you know, rock fans that either love or hate the band, the fans that either love them or don't get them at all. And I think there's those are very distinct parallels between the two bands. Ironically, both bands also toured together a tremendous amount in their early years. Rush opened more shows for Kiss than any band ever in Kiss history. So they have a there's a history there as well, which is interesting. So while musically they're very different, I think they both brought out the same you know, the same sort of passion from the fan base and the same sort of army mentality of like sticking together with that fan base. The big other big difference would be where Rush are very self-deprecating and very just, you know, have a sense of humor about everything and don't act larger than life. Obviously, mm -hmm. Kiss does the complete opposite. Right. So there's a big difference there. But in other areas, just the way they've generated fans and the fans feelings and their passion for the band I think are generated out of the same things. Yeah. Getty talked about that a little bit, I think during the uh, documentary when he said what a great gift it was to be on tour with Kiss to learn not only the business, but how to put on a show and how to be someone's favorite band. Yeah, I got to tell you, I, I did a show as many people know for many years on TV on VH1 classic called that metal show. And in one of the earliest episodes in the first season, I think it was, we used to do two shows in one day. So one episode, I had Ace Freely as the guest. And in the episode we were shooting next, it was Getty and Alex. And obviously, since we were shooting in the same day, the guests would see each other in the hallways as they got ready to come out. And I remember, you know, I'm very close with Ace Freely, and I have a long history with Ace Freely. And Whenever I would bring up Rush, he would always laugh and have a chuckle. Mm -hmm. And he would tell me, he goes, we had so many great times when we were kids on the road together. And I realized that I had Ace and Getty and Alex coming to the studio the same day. And uh, I couldn't wait to see because neither of them had seen each other in like better than 20 years. And I couldn't wait to see what the interaction was going to be like. And sure enough, I captured that interaction and I was there to witness it. And they all just hugged and laughed and completely reverted back to being those kids in their earliest years of touring in the, in the 70s. And I do have a photo somewhere of me with all of them together. And it's a, it's a, it's a fantastic moment. And I remember Ace, you know, Ace has got a very uh, funny cackle when he laughs, you know, and Alex would always laugh about that. But Alex always, uh, Ace always laughed about Alex because he used to tell me this story that on the road, 
those guys were pranksters and Alex used to wear a paper bag over his head all the time <laughs> yeah. and like smoke a cigarette through the paper bag. And Ace would just always be like, Alex with that bag, ah! <laughs> you know, but it's just so funny to see these larger than life rock guys, how we view them. And then they see each other and it's just like, wow, we go back, they go back to being kids playing in clubs again. You know, I read that Gene hated that bag bit and Ace loved it. Makes sense. And, and <laughs> he loved it even more because Gene hated it. Yes. Totally makes sense. Yes. <laughs> so as Rush's career is progressing, so is yours. Now, when was the first time you had the opportunity to interview Getty and Alex? It, it wasn't that metal show. It was before that, I would imagine, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was definitely before that. And I'm trying to remember the very, very first time um, when it would have been what year did Getty's solo record come out? Oh, wow. You're, you're putting me on the spot here. I think it was 2000. It was after Test for Echo for sure. So that may have been the first time I interviewed Getty. And I remember that story very, very clearly because I was doing my radio show on WNEW in New York, a radio station that's no longer there, but I was doing my show there on the weekend. I did a metal show there. And I remember, as we all know, Getty is a huge baseball fan. Mm-hmm. One of my best friends is Mike Piazza, the Hall of Fame baseball player from the Mets and the Dodgers. And at that time, Mike was playing for the Mets. And Mike used to always sit in with me on that show. He would always be my guest co-host. He was in with me almost every other week. And the day that Getty was booked to call in to promote his solo record, Mike happened to be sitting in the studio. And I didn't even realize it at the time that how big of a deal that was going to be for Getty. I wasn't even thinking about that right. because Mike was sitting in front of me and it was a huge deal for him that Getty was calling. So I remember, and I have the audio somewhere, I remember Getty calling in and I told Getty who was in the studio with me. I said, a friend of mine, I know you're a baseball fan. You probably know Mike Piazza, who was actively playing at the time for the Mets. And Getty just was like, you know, like a kid in a candy store, all excited. Mike was all excited. The guy from Rush was on and I just kind of got out of the way. And uh, <laughs> the funny, the funniest story that I, I remember from that interview was Getty saying to Mike, Hey Mike, I was down in spring training. I came to one of the spring training games that you played against whoever. And Mike said to him, really? And he goes, he goes, yeah. He goes, well, why didn't you, say hello or something. He, and Getty was like, I can't say hello to you. You're Mike Piazza. <laughs> <laughs> and then Mike goes, well, Getty, I got a confession to make. And he's like, what's that? And he goes, I knew you were in the stand. Somebody told me because they know I'm a Rush fan. And Getty's like, why didn't you come over and say hello? And he goes, <laughs> I can't do that. You're Getty Lee. <laughs> <laughs> so they That's had this awesome. like standoff. So that that's definitely one of my earliest memories of having an interview with anybody in the band. And then from there, as the 2000s progressed, I had a lot of experiences interviewing them for VH1 Classic for TV. They always did my radio show, but when it came to doing TV, I started in TV prior to doing that metal show in around 03, 04. And whatever records came out during that point for each one, they came in and it was always Getty and Alex. I've got several photos on the set and they came in and then two major things happened. The, the Neil interview, which we can talk about if you want, but the other thing is, and I will never forget this two major things that those guys just talking about the type of people they are. There was a period of time between that metal show ran from 2008 to 2015 from around 06 to 08. I was off the air completely on TV VH1 classic fired everyone and went into this autopilot mode for a couple of years. And Rush's camp called VH1 and said, Hey, we have this new record coming out. I don't remember what record it would have been at the time. Maybe snakes and arrows, maybe vapor trails. I don't know. I'd have to look it up. And they said, we'd like to come in again and do an interview with Eddie like we've done in the past. Because those guys, and I'm not tooting my own horn, but they always, they've always told me they enjoy 
you know, I, I'm a fan, but I'm not fanboyed out in front of them. And I, mm-hmm. I, you know, we have a good relationship. And I said, uh, they said, VH1 said to them, well, we're not doing, we're not working with Eddie right now. We're not even doing interviews. We're not producing anything. At that point, they had closed their studio. So they weren't producing anything in-house. And they said, well, we'd really like to do this with him and do something. And they go, we just don't have the ability to do that right now. So what Rush did, and I'll never forget this, is they called Atlantic Records, who they were on at the time. And they said, we want to shoot an hour interview with, with Eddie Trunk to promote this record. And we need you to set it up and find a studio and a crew to shoot it. And we'll own the footage and we'll decide what we do with it. And they paid me. And they said, well, we want to pay him whatever he'd normally get for a shoot at that time. And they told Atlantic to get it done. And they did. And I went to, we, they rented some loft. I went in, it was Getty and Alex and I, we did an hour sit down. They were great. We had a great time. They captured the video. I believe that that video not only was then licensed by VH1 and aired on TV to promote the record, but since Rush owned it, I'm pretty sure it turned up somewhere in one of the special editions or reissues of one of the records where they actually put it in as a DVD or a bonus extra feature. So I'll never forget them doing that. And I'll never forget in 08, when I started that metal show, nobody knew what that metal show was. Nobody knew it hadn't aired yet. We were doing our first season and I reached out and asked those guys if they would do me a solid and come and do this new show that I was working on. And Getty and Alex on their dime flew from Toronto to New York, came and did a show with us. They were in the first season. Uh, I never forget. It was, uh, it was around Thanksgiving for us because I remember them saying, yeah, we had Thanksgiving a couple weeks ago. And I said, there's Canadian Thanksgiving. And they were like, <laughs> they were like, yeah. And I was like, wow. And I go, I had no idea. And there is, there's a different date for it, but there is. So the fact that they did that for me is something I'll never forget. And it meant a lot because it showed VH1 that I could pull a lot of cool guests just off of my reputation at that point. So having them having done that and, and them also sending a message at VH1 at the time that like, hey, I was their guy. They're going to find a way to get something done, even if I wasn't working for them at the time. Really, really important stuff. And I'm really grateful for it. So you mentioned the interview you did with Neil on VH1. I believe it was 2006. I watched it. And talk about a kid in a candy store. You looked like a kid in a candy store talking to Neil. You were so happy to speak to him. Tell us about that day. Well, that was a couple of years before that metal show launched. Uh, for people that don't know, I was a host on VH1 Classic for about four years prior to that metal show. And I hosted VJ Hours and various interviews and all genres of music. And our interview show at that time was called hanging with, and it was a variety of artists that I did everything you could imagine. And one day the producer says to me, uh, we have Neil Peart interested in coming on. Do you want to do the interview? And I was like, what? <laughs> like no, nobody interviews Neil. Neil doesn't even do stuff like this. What are you talking about? And they said, yeah, he's coming in to promote a book. He had written, I forget which book it was. It was the one where he drove in a car around the country. And they said, uh, you know, we would like you, you know, would you like to do this? It would be an hour with him on set and talking about the book and whatever else. And look, the interviews on that show prior to that metal show, and one of the reasons why that metal show came about is because they were very restrictive, meaning they were very produced. I was told, given certain parameters, which I always hate, not from the artist, but from the network at the time, and I, certain things I could and should and shouldn't ask, and I had to act a certain way, dress a certain way. So it wasn't fully, those interviews pr- prior to that metal show weren't fully me. I did the best I could with them, but they were, they were controlled in a different way, let's just say. But uh, an amazing experience. And what I remember about it most was that he came in completely with no fanfare. He came in completely alone. There were no handlers. There was no management. There was no PR. There was no agent, nothing. He rang the doorbell to the studio. 
He had nothing but a backpack with him. He said he was there to see me. We met. Nicest guy in the world. We spent an hour or so on set. I haven't watched that interview in years, but I know it's become this thing just because it's unusual because he doesn't do that sort of stuff. But it was it was amazing. And we we it went great. And I really felt we hit it off so much that I really felt like that was going to be the start of he and I doing a lot more things like that as time went on. Unfortunately, it wasn't. It was the only time I ever met him. But again, we all know he was a very private and reclusive guy. But the other thing that I really remember about that is not only was it such a such a, a great time in this sort of historic thing, because Neil just didn't do TV interviews like that one-on-one, really. But what I really remember about it is when we were done shooting, he said to me, he goes, uh, I want to go have a smoke and take a walk. I said, sure. So our studio at that time was on 37th Street in New York City. And we went down the elevator and we went and stood on the sidewalk and he was smoking these, uh, I think they're called clove cigarettes. I'll never forget the smell of them. They're a very distinct smell. And he was just standing against the wall smoking this clove cigarette. Rush hour of New York City walking by on the, the sidewalk. Not a person bothered him or recognized him. Just a guy with a baseball cap leaning against the cement wall, smoking a cigarette, talking to me. And we talked out on the street on 37th Street easily for an hour. Just life, family, how long you've been doing this, like no super geeky rush stuff. The only time I saw Neil get when we were in the set and on the floor of the studio, the only time I saw him get, for lack of a better term, weird was when. People made a big deal out of it being him. We had one producer at the time that as much as he was like, he was a super rush fan. And as much as he was holding it together towards the end, he was just like, Oh my God, the professor is here. Oh my God. This is unbelievable. (laughs) And he just starts like flipping out. And that's when you could see Neil kind of like go into a shell a little bit and kind of be like, you know, freaked out a little, but as long as you just shot the shit about anything, just like a normal dude, he was a normal dude and he was the best. He was great. So I remember the private conversation on the street, even more so than what we actually shot, because I knew that that wasn't going to be there saved forever for people to see. That's only in my mind Mm -hmm. because I lived that. There were no cameras or microphones there. So that was a really, really cool thing. And I often thought, because even getting out, were like, wow, that's that's amazing that Neil did that with you and all that. He said he really enjoyed it. I really thought that was going to lead to when we've gotten together since then that he would be included and that it wouldn't be just Getty or Alex or just the two of them. And that I'd have a chance to do more with Neil, but it just never transpired. Even when I went to the shows, everybody knows that Neil does the runner before the thing's over. So I'd go backstage and I'd see Getty and Alex, but Neil's long gone. So I'd always hope to be able to reconnect with him at least another time or two, but it just ended up never happening. You think that's why Neil loved New York so much? I mean, he wrote the song, The Camera Eye, partially about New York. He just blended in. He could hang out on the street like that and no one would recognize him. Same thing in Los Angeles, right? I think, Steve, that the bigger thing is the way he carried himself and the way he came in, no one was going to recognize him because there's a lot of celebrities that talk about not wanting to be recognized but then also show up at a store with four bodyguards, handlers, cameras, and leak to TMZ where they're going to be. <laughs> That's the reality, right? Yeah. They pretend like they don't want the attention, but they do everything to attract the attention to them. Neil came in with nobody with a backpack and a baseball cap on. It wasn't like he had three goons standing by him like this, uh, making a scene for people to look and say, who's that? I think it's a bigger lesson. It's just like, if you really don't want to attract attention, there's ways that you can do it. Look, I've been out to dinner with Slash. He's one of the most recognizable guys in in rock. He doesn't walk around with the top hat on, you know? (laughs) So, so that's the thing. There's a way, the way you carry yourself that you can have a normal life if you want. And I think Neil was really, really smart about that. And he, he figured that out. Do you think Flavor Flav wears the clock out to dinner? What do you think? I know he does. (laughs) (laughs) 
I know he does because he lives in Las Vegas where I just bought a place and he goes and works out of a friend of mine's studio. And every time I've seen him, he's got the clock. (laughs) Various sizes to the clock. I think when he wants to be incognito, it's a much smaller (laughs) clock. (laughs) But when he wants to really bring it, it's the full on grandfather clock. Is it like a like a wristwatch when he wants to be on incognito? Just like a little little thing hanging around his neck in a chain? I would think, but that guy lives it and he's he's that twenty four seven. Were you at the the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony when Rush got inducted? Flavor Flav kind of ruined that whole night, I think. <laughs> no, I was only at the Hall of Fame inductions for Kiss and for Metallica. I was not there for Rush, but I am a voter and I do vote. Uh, I do have an official voter for the Hall of Fame, and I screamed and yelled about Rush forever and, of course, voted for him when they finally got on the ballot. So what about the respect that Rush has in the rock and roll community? You know so many rock stars, and you know just from watching the documentary Beyond the Lighted Stage, you see Billy Corgan, you see Brett Michaels, you see all these guys who just have such utmost respect for Rush. What about the respect they have in the rock community? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's um, obviously huge, I mean, and deserved. Uh, any band that's been in the game coming up on, well, obviously they're not really active anymore, sadly, but coming up on 50 years of, of existence or 40 years of existence, whatever they were really active, I mean, that that's going to say a lot. The musicianship obviously says a lot. The quality of the record says a lot. And also just the quality of the people. That's the thing I keep going back to with, with these guys. They're just really good people. They are, I, I'm in a very fortunate position to say that I, I truly do know both of them. And I've done a lot with them over the years. I just had Getty for Getty's book. He, we just did a few things together. So just quality people, great, caring, nice, genuine people. And I think that really also carries a lot in the industry. I think most of the people in the business know that. That all being said, if we're being honest, there are just as many people, though, that are musicians that actually don't get Rush, that it's not their thing. It goes back to that fan base thing, that it's a, it can be a bit of a polarizing thing. There's nobody that doesn't appreciate and respect them as people and as musicians, but there are people that get their music and people that don't. And that goes for even artists themselves that I've talked to where they'll be like, you know, they're, they're more into very basic three chord rock or whatever. And it's just not their thing or the vocals, not their thing, or it's too proggy or it's too trippy or it's too this. So there are, you know, there are people that will tell you privately, like, yeah, I just, I just never got the whole rush thing. That's fine. I, as a fan, it doesn't bother me to hear people say that it's just, that's with every band. So massive universal respect, but how many people really know and love the music? It's pretty polarized, I think, versus, you know, what, what you like, just what your personal tastes are. So like you said, you know, now they're not active musically right now. Where do you think that Rush fits into the whole pantheon of great rock bands? Like you said, they're, they're prog for a while. They're, you know, they're bluesy chord stuff at the beginning and then they're keyboardy do they have a, a single place in rock history i mean look, for me personally i think they're one of the the all-time great bands i think i think what's amazing to me about rush is how they did it so uncompromisingly where they did it on their terms they never sold out they never went for the blatant hit single they never followed the trends or fads for the most part it's well known on the balls of their ass about to be dropped. They went and the answer to that was a a record with one side being one song with 2112. I mean, you know, that's a ballsy thing. That's doing things your way. You know, I think that that is all stuff that really comes into play in giving them rightfully regarded as making them one of the all time great bands. So I feel that most people feel that way, but again, I'd be lying if I said, and I don't meet and talk to people all the time that, Rush is just not their thing. One of the things that I think is really interesting about Rush that changed in, in their last 10 years or so was I used to always call Rush chick repellent because when you put Rush on, most women hated Rush. 
most you you would go to a rush show you would not see women there i mean the band has commented on this themselves that changed in the last couple times i saw the band and and the last time was on the r40 tour i mean i was shocked at the amount of women in the audience it was great to see so that there was definitely a seismic shift there where early on might have been 10% women at a rush show and I think in their later years, it was a good 30 to 40% in terms of the mix. Now, that could have been just that the fan base got older and husbands dragging the wife to the show. <laughs> but I mean, I like to think that as and as I've gone on in life, I've learned I've met a lot more women that openly do say they like the band. So I think that's really cool. And that was a big change in their appeal. What show did you see on the R40 tour, Eddie? And did you know? that you were seeing Rush for the last time when you were there? So Steve, that's a bit of an interesting story too, because I travel quite a bit in non-pandemic times for work. And I missed the show that they played locally for me, which would have been the garden. Mm -hmm. And I, like everybody started getting a feeling like, even though they didn't call it a farewell tour, that it could be the end. And I heard so many reports about how great the R40 tour was at that point. And I knew there was only, it was only like three shows left in it. And I was like, am I going to take a chance on them coming back and saying, I missed this because we all know the story. Every band says their farewell or gives a wink, their ending and everyone comes back. And I also made a bad judgment call a number of years earlier when I was offered a ticket to the Led Zeppelin reunion in England, and I passed on going to England because I was sure that Zeppelin would do at least one U.S. show, and they didn't. And that decision haunts me to this day. So I'm like, I can't take a chance here in case this really is the end. And we all know they didn't play the farewell card, but they kind of gave you a good indication like that could be it. Mm -hmm. So I looked at their remaining dates and I looked at my personal schedule and there was one show, I think it was the third to last show, and it was in Denver. And I live in New Jersey, but I'm like, I got to do this. So again, I know the organization. I know uh, a guy named Andy Curran, who's worked for them forever, used to be in a, a band I love called Coney Hatch. Andy's a good friend. He worked and still does work with Rush. Rumor is he's doing something with Alex now, actually. And uh, I called Andy, who's on the road with them, and I said, hey, I'm, I'm going to come out. He's like, come out where? I said, to Denver. I go, is it cool? And he goes, yeah, man, we got you if you want to come out. He goes, you should see this before it ends. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to. Booked a, fl a flight, flew to Denver on my own, and uh, got in the night before, went to the Pepsi Center, got there that afternoon early, got to watch Soundcheck which was crazy. Doors closed, just sitting in the empty arena, watching them play. Amazing experience. And then they're done sound checking. Doors are about to open. Andy grabs me. I had a recorder with me. He goes, you want a few minutes with Alex? You want to grab a few minutes? I go, yeah, absolutely. So I went backstage, sat with Alex for about a half an hour. We recorded an interview. I aired it on my radio show and then went back out, watched the show, Everyone that saw R40 knows. I mean, I've said this many times. I don't think a band could possibly end better than Rush ended. No band has ever gone out in a more classy, great way where you're just talking about what an amazing experience. So many bands end and you're like, thank God they ended. My God, they were just, you know, they're on their last leg mm -hmm. or they didn't do this or they can't do that. To see that show. I thought it was the best Yeti had sang in a really long time, which I talked to him about that after the show. And he, I remember distinctly him telling me he changed something in his diet, which helped his voice. I think he said he cut out dairy or something. But I remember it was really interesting. We had this conversation about it. But I just thought the show was so brilliantly orchestrated, produced. They played so great. I sat there like 10, they put me like 10 rows back. I was just floored. And then, um, you know, show ends and I go back and again, Neil does the runner. He was gone, but Getty and Alex were in their dressing room, invited me in. They had a table out with some food, sit down, have something to eat. We shared some food and a drink. We talked for about an 
hour. Just an, what an amazing privilege for me to have had those experiences and to, uh, you know, for them to welcome me in like that. And it's just something that I will never, ever forget. And I'm so appreciative and grateful for my relationship with them. And it was just uh, the final memory of seeing the actual band will be something that of all the bands I love, again, I don't think anybody could ever top that. Not the personal aspects. Those are all great things that I had those opportunities. But just from a fan perspective, that production, that set list, that performance, how good they were, something I will never forget. And I'll give you one quick, I know I'm talking a lot, but I get going. <laughs> no, it's fine. One, one funny thing that you guys might uh, appreciate about this, which is just these funny little insight stories that come back to me. So at the time I went to Denver for that show, I, and I only went for that reason, weed, marijuana, had just become legal in, Den in Colorado. For people, it's now legal in like 20 states, of course, but Colorado, as most people know, was the first right. state to legalize marijuana. I've never been a big weed guy ever but when in rome you know <laughs> when in denver when in denver when you're going to a rush show you know so i went into this dispensary and i told the guy i was a total novice and i know that sounds ridiculous but it's true i was never into weed or drugs and i told him i was going to see rush and what did he recommend and <laughs> the rush blend yeah and i said is there something that um I also need something to help me sleep because I have a lot of insomnia. And he's like, okay, so gives me one joint. He goes, this is good for the rush show and this will help you sleep. Try this. Okay. So I pay him. And I take these two joints and I walk out of the dispensary. And that night I tried it and it didn't do anything for me because I don't know how to properly smoke anything because I, <laughs> I don't. Uh, to this day, if I'll do any sort of, I'm in LA a lot where weed's totally legal and it does, I will take a half of an edible in those situations because it'll help me sleep. That's the truth, but I don't normally do it, but uh, it didn't do anything for me. And I hate inhaling anything. It, it feels like it irritates my throat. I just am not good with smoking anything ever. So I have this half burned joint that did nothing for me because I probably didn't inhale it the, the way that way. And if people have ever bought marijuana legally it's very professionally packaged it's in a little plastic tube it's got <laughs> sign it's got you know wrapping on it so i had it in my pocket at the rush show and alex as many people know is very open proponent of marijuana and he has some arthritic conditions he claims it helps him with and all that mm -hmm. but he's very open about it he talked about it in the press so i'm thinking wow i'm in denver i'm in colorado I wonder if Alex knows weed's legal here. And I got this half a joint and I'm not flying back. <laughs> I can't fly with it. So as I'm walking out of the room, I stop. I go, hey, Al. Because what? I go, like, I got this crazy contraband or something. I'm like, I got you something, dude. If you want this, it's yours. And I hand him the tube and he just looks at it. And he opens it up and he sees like a half a joint in there. I go, <laughs> and I told him the story. I go, I can't fly with it. So I figured you'd want it, man. And then I, I th he goes, Oh, thanks. Thanks. I go, yeah, I know you, you know, you, you smoke or whatever I've, I've read about. It. He goes, yeah, no, no, thanks. This is great. Yeah. And I know it's legal here. That's great. Thank you, man. Thanks, Ed. And I walk out and I'm like, what an asshole I am. Like, does Alex Lifeson really want my half smoke joint? Like he's Alex Lifeson from Rush. He probably has a road case of joints that he's had on the road with them since 1973. And I'm over here acting like I was like maybe the most tool dick move I could have. <laughs> Even though that wasn't what my intention was, it was coming from a good place. I just grew up with weed being so taboo that I'm like, oh, I'm going to get Alex some contraband. <laughs> for the road, a stupid little half smoked joint, which I'm sure, and I don't blame him one bit. He promptly threw in the garbage the minute I walked out of the room. <laughs> but he was nice about it though. Cause he's such a nice guy. Yeah. He's like, Oh yeah. Thanks man. Yeah. I, I, I hit a dispensary. Yeah. I got some stuff too. Oh, okay. Thanks. I'm like, <laughs> the minute I walk out, I'm like, he doesn't want that. He probably looked at Getty and was just like, what am I going to do with this? It's the thought really that counts.
So, Eddie, do you think Eddie and Alex will work together again? And if so, what form will that take? I don't know if they'll work together. I can't imagine they won't. I want to think they will. But I do believe both will make music. Alex has done some things kind of under the radar, but he's done some things on people's records. When I had Getty on for the bass book, which was the last time I had him, had him on the show, on my, on my radio show, we were in the studio together. And I remember him telling me that he's been enjoying, since the band had stopped, he had been enjoying traveling so much. And I remember saying to him, you just spent like 45 years traveling. You want to travel? Like what? He goes, no, no, no. He goes, when I travel on tour with the band, a lot of times we don't even see the city. He said, I, I'm traveling with my wife and we're going to all these places and he's taking photos and he's spending a few days in every place. So I got that. It's like, it's a totally different mentality to travel. So I know he was really enjoying that. But that being said, he absolutely told me on more than one occasion, he's got more music in him and he wants to make music. Whether he'll do that with Alex or not, I don't know. I mean, you know, Alex, if, for people that saw R40, Alex, that arthritic thing that Alex was battling was a pretty serious thing that I'm no doctor, but I can't imagine it gets a lot better with age. But if you recall on R40, Alex did an interview where he talked about it. And when I interviewed him at that show in Denver, I brought it up and he said to me, you know, I really regret bringing this up in Rolling Stone because going public with it, now it's all anyone's worried about and asking me about. And I got that. And then when I watched the show, that show in Denver, there were a couple of times in the set where he took his hand off the guitar neck and shook it. I'll never forget it. And I remember talking to a few people on the crew and they're like, yeah, I mean, sometimes the, it manifests itself and it can affect his playing for a second. So I don't know where he's at with that. I know that he was on, he had told me he was on a, a prescription medication at the time to help him. And uh, I just don't know where he's at with that as far as physically being able to possibly tour, but make music in the studio, make a record completely. I, I caused a big problem, not a, not intentionally, but a, we all know how the rush world is, but a, a few years ago, two, three years ago, I caused a big stir because doing, I do a daily rock talk show on Sirius XM, uh, shameless plug every day, two to four Eastern live. It, I basically call it sports talk for rock fans. And it's on channel 106 on Sirius XM, a channel called volume. And I take calls just like we're doing now. And I'll take calls and questions from the audience about anything. And someone on the air asked me the exact question you did. Do I think they would play together again? And I said, speculating just as a fan, mm -hmm. I said, what I'd love to see them do is go out. They don't have to call it Rush, but go call it Lee Lifeson and go just you know, do some Rush songs, but go out and do your own thing. And I said, I think that would be really cool. That me speculating as a fan turned into world news <laughs> across the rock media. Eddie Trunk says new band coming Lee Lifeson. Right. I deal with that kind of shit all the time. It causes me major problems because people don't actually hear what I say and they interpret things the wrong way. So I had to help put that fire out. Again, the rush camp was incredibly cool about it, but they were like, can you clarify this? This is really getting steam. We have no intention of that happening right now. Can you please? And I helped put the fire out as best I could. And they knew it was not intentional. They just knew that's how stuff happens with Rush fans. But uh, that being said, here we are a few years later, and I believe that would be awesome. And I believe that's something that they would do. And Andy Curran, who's close with those guys, said that they both said they feel still feel they have some music to make together. Getty told me that in the last interview I did with him. So it's just a question, I think, of when, not if. Well, Eddie, I know Rush fans all over the world appreciate the work you do working with Rush over the years, and we really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Thanks so much, man. This was great. Yeah, look, I love talking about this stuff, and I'm sorry if I talk too much because I get going and I get into this, but uh, I, I appreciate you having me. It's fun. I've never done, I, I do a lot of uh, these sort of things, but never did one centered on Rush. And as you can tell, I've got a, I also have a lot of passion and love for the guys personally and their music. 
I just got the permanent waves 40th reissue. I've been cranking it, the live stuff on it. Permanent waves is still probably my favorite record because it was my first and the stuff still just sounds so, so good. And I hope that Getty and Alex do stuff again, whether it's individually or together, there's been some rumblings about stuff. I mean, I think once COVID clears, we'll really have a, a good idea of what is happening. Who knows? For all we know, they could have been in studios during the whole lockdown making some music. So I uh, just don't know, but we do know that we're, whatever it is, it's going to be of of that rush quality. And um, I'm excited for it. And I hope they're able to hope they're able to do it. And, and the last thing is, I hope, like a lot of the fans, that rumored or almost happened Neil tribute happens because that's a guy that absolutely deserves a proper, well-done tribute. There's not a drummer on the planet that wouldn't show up to remember Neil Peart. So I think he, he, no one's ever going to forget Neil and his legacy will go on forever. But I think it would be a wonderful night for the fans. Maybe the money's raised for a, his charity for mm -hmm. brain cancer or something. But I, I hope, I know that that, there was a semi thing kind of announced that went away pretty quick, but I hope that that eventually when it can happen does happen because obviously it's very deserved. We've got our tickets, Eddie. Hopefully we'll see you there. Yeah. Did you guys actually buy tickets for that? Oh yeah. They keep yeah. postponing it. They postponed it. I think four times. Yeah. I wasn't sure what happened. I wasn't sure even what, what went on. And I remember asking, I remember asking Andy actually about that because I wasn't sure if the band was involved and, it seems to be sort of a gray area as to where that stands, but I believe Neil's yeah. family did sign mm -hmm. off on it. Yeah. They don't have a new date. They're just telling you to hold tickets. I think they just keep pushing the date back. I think it's October now, but I, I think they're waiting for the border to open up is what I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Canada, unfortunately, Canada is, is really still very bad apparently with COVID. Mm. I know people that go there for work and they still can't go in. So yeah, until we're fully through this, I don't think we're really going to know anything about anything. Yeah. Eddie, thanks so much, man. This was great. Guys, thank you. Steve, great to see you again and connect with you and stay in touch. And Jerry, good to meet you. And thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you. So, Jerry, Eddie was talking about what great guys Rush are. Eddie Trunk is a great guy, just like Eddie, just like Alex, just like Neil. That's why he connected so well with them, because he's a great guy, too. Yeah, he's just a, a normal guy who does interesting things. Oh, absolutely. And that's why the rock community connects so well with Eddie. Oh, yeah. I, we get a lot of uh, comments every once in a while about how great Eddie would be as a guest. And you, like you said, you wanted him to be on for a long time. Yeah, well, I knew Eddie before he was Eddie. I mean, he was Eddie, but he wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't Eddie. You know what I mean? His name was Charles back then. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean. I do know what you mean. Before he was well known as Eddie Trunk. Now he's uh, right. he's still the same guy, though. He's still the same guy. Same great guy. Yeah. And the stories that jumped out at me that he told, number one, was the Mike Piazza story was great. <laughs> it was. It's like a mutual admiration society between oh, yeah. the two of them. They didn't even know it. Well, you think about that sort of thing. Getty's a huge baseball fan. Yeah. Mike's a huge rock and roll fan, right? Yeah. They're both scared to talk to the other one. That's great. <laughs> I know. I mean, everybody has their heroes, right? Right. And the other story was Eddie giving the joint to Alex. <laughs> That's incredible. That's like giving him five bucks. Being like, oh, hey, I can loan you five bucks if you need it, you know? <laughs> oh, man. Terrific. Just just great. Thanks again yeah, to Eddie for joining us. That's That was terrific. Uh, before we go, there's one more thing I wanted to talk about. It's something I'm starting to do with at Rush Fans, our friends over at the Instagram page at Rush Fans. Oh, yeah. Ryan and the gang. Ryan and the gang, they have their, you know, they have their own uh, YouTube channel where they've been doing all of these different rush related things. And mm -hmm. they've started something new called stick it out where Ryan and I, and two other admins, Stephanie and Jim are going to listen to our least favorite songs over the course of a month and then come back on and see whether or not listening to it so many times has changed our mind about the song. So you're eventually going to listen to Ty Shan over and over and over again until you like it. Well, I am going to listen to it over and over again. It still <laughs> remains to be seen if I'm going to like it. The first episode is already up on the Rush Fans uh, YouTube page. It's like the prelude where you kind of introduce what's happening mm -hmm. and we pick our first song. So people can go watch that right now. All right, we'll check it out. And you can find us on Twitter at RushFanCast. We are on Instagram as well at TheRushCast. Email Jerry, therushcast at gmail.com. 
Let them know what you thought of our conversation with Eddie Trunk today. The bass intro and outro is Lex, as always. And Jarrah, I hope you got a great quote for me to wrap this up. Well, it's a quote I've used a couple of times before, but, you know, it's it comes up so often. Eddie loves permanent waves, and he, he loves Spirit of Radio. Okay. So you could probably say it with me, Steve. Uh, you do it. <laughs> Begin the day with a friendly voice, a companion, unobtrusive, who plays that song that's so elusive in the magic music. Makes your morning mood. Never gets old. Never gets old. Thanks, Jer. All right, see you later.